0: Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of y'all, to see you through the camera. Um, if you were here with us last week, we were starting a two-part series on the Sabbath. And last week we wanted to really focus on an overarching theology of the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath got to do with us? What does the Sabbath have to do with um, us being stuck in our homes, forced to cease from our rest, and we looked at um, the fact that the Sabbath, the original Sabbath, comes after God's creation of the world. And uh, in that creation, He defeats his chief enemies of uh, formlessness or chaos, void or emptiness and darkness. And after he puts those enemies under his feet, after he forms the formlessness, after he fills the void, after he expunges the darkness with the light, he rests. He rests uh, in victory. He rests in Sabbath. And then he invites all of the creation to rest with him, celebrating that victory. But we notice that things don't seem all that great that whatever victory there was at the beginning of creation it doesn't seem to be anymore Um, because of the fall because of what adam and eve did in the garden we see that the enemies of chaos and emptiness and darkness have returned and because of that uh, we need a new creation and we need a new sabbath rest And so the story of redemption is the story of this new creation that God is working through Christ and particularly he's done it in the hearts of believers. And he promises that there's going to be a future rest to come, but a rest that we get to participate in now. And so when we reflect on our lives and we look and we see the chaos of our hearts, things are disordered, we're pulled in all different directions. We uh, feel aimless. We feel empty. We are. Uh, we feel restless. We're reminded that there is a rest that we can participate in right now, in Christ. And that rest is a foretaste of the rest that we will have in Christ at the end of days. So this week, what I want to do is I want to explore what does that rest look like. What does it look like? For us to participate in Sabbath rest right now and to do that we need to turn to Psalm 16 so if you would like to turn with me to Psalm 16 what I want us to do is I want us to reflect on two primary realities the reality one that every day of the week we are called into a Sabbath rest in Christ but two We are also called to a specific day, the Sabbath day, Sunday, in which we are trained and formed into Sabbath people in order for us to live out that Sabbath reality the rest of the week. So this isn't to say that because we participate in the Sabbath of Christ every day that there is no more Sabbath day. In fact, it's to say that it makes Sunday, the Sabbath day, even more significant. Uh, one way to put this is, Christ rose from the dead. That's resurrection day. Right? Uh, and his resurrection is something we participate in every day of our lives. But that doesn't mean that we don't particularly reflect on it and celebrate it on resurrection day, Sunday, every So we're going to look at the Sabbath day, Sunday, and why that's important, but we're also going to look at how do we participate in Sabbath rest, the rest of God, throughout the week as he does a work of new creation in our hearts in this very harried world we are in. So turn with me to Psalm 16. This is what King David says. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today. We confess that unless you speak, these words fall on deaf ears. I I do not have any power than myself to say anything true, to say anything that will give life, but you do. Father, we pray that you would give us life through your word this morning pray that you would teach us what it means to find our rest in you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So here we get a psalm, a psalm of David, one of the many psalms that we get of David, but this one is a little bit interesting. Um, People have kind of noted that this one's different. In some ways, it seems to be a, a kind of confession of faith that can be sung at any time, any day, forever. He says here in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, I find that interesting. He doesn't say, deliver me, for in you I take refuge. He says, preserve me. And the difference, I think, is subtle but important. Apparently, David's going through something difficult. We don't know what it is. We've been studying First and 2 Samuel. We, we know that Many times in his life, he was on the run from enemies. He was hiding. Um, He was scared for his life. Uh, Even when he became king, his son rebelled against him. There was another rebellion against him a little bit later in his reign. There's many times in his life where this psalm would have been applicable. And in whatever difficult circumstance he's under, he's pleading for God to sustain him. He's not saying... Free me from what I'm going through. Change all my circumstances. Make things the way I want them to be. He's saying, sustain me. Preserve me. Give me whatever it is that I need in order to continue in faithfulness no matter what happens in my life. I think this is very important for us to reflect on. As we reflect on Sabbath rest. What is true Sabbath rest in Christ? Often we get confused and we think, I will feel at peace or I will feel at rest when my circumstances fall into place. When the things on the outside fall according to what I want them to be. When things change, when things aren't hard anymore, when I'm not scared, When everything's good, then I will feel at rest. Then I will feel at peace. Once I'm delivered, then I can Sabbath. But what David is saying here is, sustain me, preserve me. You are my refuge. You are the one that protects me even when all of the circumstances are out of control, even when chaos and emptiness and darkness seem to surround me you are my refuge you are my fortress you will sustain me and preserve me even through the darkest times and because of that I can take refuge I can find peace in my soul because of you he goes on to say I say to the Lord you are my Lord I have no good apart from you imagine that no good apart from you all of his circumstances could fall into place everything could be like the way he would want it to be and yet if he did not have the lord if he and the lord were distant there would be no good imagine if you could think about what would you want right now to make your life better okay the virus is gone we can get back to normal life i can get the job that i want i can have the family relationships that I want, uh, the things that I've been longing for, I can all get. Will you be at peace? Will you be at rest? David says, no. Apart from the Lord, no. But with the Lord, even if I don't get any of those things, I am at peace. Because my good comes from you. My good does not come from my circumstances. My good does not come from the things outside of me. My good comes from the Lord. I have no good apart from you. He says, uh, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So he seems to go from looking at his own circumstances and looking up to God and saying preserve me, in you I will take refuge, in you I will find good, and then he looks out and he looks at two different types of people. The saints, the faithful ones in the land, and the idolaters and the pagans. Two ways, two paths that we might walk when things are not going according to plan. And if we're honest, we probably find ourselves more in the category of verse 4 than the category of verse 3. Look at what he says about idolaters. He says that these people run after another god. They pour out drink offerings of blood. They take the names of their gods on their lips, but their sorrows increase. And this is, I think... uh, something that we might not initially feel like we connect with. You know, when things get difficult, I don't suddenly like make a carved idol of something and put it on my hearth and start bowing down to it and, you know, cut myself and pour out blood and do weird pagan rituals and practices. I've never even been tempted to do that. Um, So we might think that, well, okay, so I'm not an idolater. I, I don't worship other gods, so this doesn't really apply to me. I'm probably more like the people in verse three. The excellent ones in the land. That's probably me. But if you think about it, if you run to anything as your source of good to deliver you out of your tribulation apart from God, you are verse four. You are pursuing a created thing to take the place of the Creator. You're seeking a deliverer apart from Yahweh. You're seeking a refuge apart from our God. You're trying to find rest in idols. Essentially, if you think about it, if what's wrong with our world is this chaos and this emptiness and this darkness, when we pursue sin or when we pursue the created thing in place of the creator, when we try to uh, soothe our pain instead of going to the Lord with our pain, when we try to distract ourselves from the difficult things rather than bringing them before the Lord, when we anxiously and hurriedly try to do everything we can to control our circumstances instead of going to the Lord in faith and bringing it to Him in prayer, What we're doing is we are going to the forces of chaos and emptiness and darkness and saying, hey, you know all that chaos I'm feeling in my life? Can you fix that? You know all that darkness that I've been fighting? Can you fix that? But what we know about idols is that those who worship them become like them. If you worship idols, you will become chaos and darkness and emptiness when you pursue those things they eat you alive there is no rest in that weary land of idolatry so David looks at these people and he says I will not participate in that even if I am tempted to I will look at the faithful ones in the land and delight in them the ones who make God their refuge even when things are out of their control. Now this is something we need to pause real quick, and we need to reflect on this and how this ties in with Sabbath. The Sabbath day, Sunday, is the thing that helps us choose the proper path. It helps center us. It's a time where we cease from all of our scrambles. We cease and we worship No matter what's going on in the outside world, we worship. We join together with the faithful, the excellent ones in the land. We delight in that rich fellowship and we learn to turn to Yahweh as our refuge and our fortress and the one who will provide for us and the one who will give us good. We don't need all the things that the world offers in order to find rest. We need the Lord. And we need the fellowship of the saints. And Sunday, the Sabbath, offers us that every week. And it bears us up, and it says, now go out into the rest of the week and do that. Be Sabbath people through the rest of the week. Look to the holy ones, look to the saints, and look to Yahweh. Find your rest and refuge in Him. So the first thing that I think uh, practicing the Sabbath does as we try to live out sabbath reality in christ is it changes our hope if you think about hope hope is that thing you look toward to get you through the now Uh, it's not some sort of um wish some sort of oh i I wish this thing i hope this thing would happen no true hope is is something that we set our eyes on it we fix our eyes on and we pursue now for many their hope is whatever plan they have for the future, whatever thing they think they can construct for themselves. Or maybe their hope is just the thing that will get them through till tomorrow. But for us, our hope is in Yahweh, the creator. The one who, if in Genesis 1, he was able to form the formlessness, fill the void, expunge the darkness, he can do it again. And he will do it, and he has done it in Christ. That's our hope. It gives us a new vision, a new hope. So Sabbath changes our hope. But it doesn't just change our hope. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These are wonderful verses. Full of life. But notice something. From all we can tell, nothing's changed in David's life. He doesn't say, you've delivered me from all of my problems. Therefore, you are my portion in my cup. Therefore, I delight in you because you've saved me from everything. No, he says, I'm in the midst of this trial. I'm in the midst of this chaos. And yet, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. What he's doing there is he's hearkening back to something that you find in um, Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, when Yahweh was doling out the land, which tribes would get what part of the land of Canaan as their inheritance? He singled out the Levites. And he said, the Levites are priests. They don't get a land inheritance. I, Yahweh, am their inheritance. He says, I am their portion. Now, If you're like a normal human being, you might think, well, that's kind of lame. I actually prefer some land, you know? Land, you know, there's, nothing lasts like land, right? If you're gonna make an investment that's gonna last, you invest in land and you can pass it on from generation to generation. Land is the thing that gives you food. Land is the place where you can put your shelter. Land is where you find your identity. Land is where you make a family. Land is the center of human existence. So if I was gonna choose between having Yahweh as my inheritance, whatever that means, or having land, who wouldn't want land? But of course, we know that having Yahweh as your inheritance has to be better, right? Because he's the one who made the land. He's the one who created the land. He's the one who sends the rain so that the land bears fruit. He's the one who protects the land from your enemies. He's the one who gives you children who can grow up on the land. And so, whereas as humans, we might long for those physical, tangible, created things to give us a center, to give us hope, to give us rest, to sustain us, to satisfy us. What he's telling the Levites and what David is picking up here is that actually, Yahweh is your inheritance. He's the one who will fill your cup. He's the one who will fill your empty stomach. He's the one who will fill your weary soul. He's the one that you should long for. And the beautiful thing about Yahweh being your inheritance, it says here, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines here would refer to the the land lines, the boundary markers, and if, if you were an Israelite and you were wondering okay which part of the land am I going to get where are the boundary markers is going to fall there are some land that's better than others you probably want the boundary markers to fall in a place that has water a place that has nice topsoil rather than rocky stuff or clay you know probably wouldn't want to live in the North Carolina area with all that red clay uh, you'd want to live in Tennessee Uh, so you would want to you would hope okay that the lines will fall for you in pleasant places in nice places in places where you can get lots of growth and he's saying here actually the lines have fallen for me in the best places possible because the lord is my inheritance and the thing about having the lord as your inheritance is that that never changes okay If you're an ancient Israelite, the way that you mark off your boundaries is by putting stones, boundary stones. But you know what can happen with boundary stones? Obnoxious people can move them. They can steal your land just by moving the boundary stones. Or an enemy could come in and take it from you. Or there could be a drought or a famine and the land will be fallow and not fertile. Lots of things can happen to physical land. Lots of things can happen to created things. But if Yahweh is your inheritance, that never changes, no matter what happens. So you can rejoice in that sweet inheritance. He is your portion. He is your cup. You can find satisfaction in Yahweh, even when everything else has been taken away. This, again, is what Sabbath teaches us. Sabbath not only changes our hope, Sabbath changes our affections and changes our tastes. We might think that land would be better than Yahweh. We might think that real food would taste better than Yahweh. We might think that drink would taste better than Yahweh. But remember what Jesus says. He says, He who will feast on my flesh and drink my blood, you will have part of me. You will have an inheritance with me. But if you don't, if you don't like that taste, if you don't like feasting on Yahweh, if you prefer to feast on created things, then the thought of having Yahweh as your inheritance or your cup or your portion, that seems revolting. Just like the people who surrounded Jesus. They didn't like it when he said, feast on my flesh, string my blood. They they didn't have the taste for it. If you go to an unbeliever and you say, hey, do you want to go to heaven? They'll probably say, sure, I'd like to go to heaven. And you ask them, well, what, what is heaven to you? And they'll probably give you some nice version of earth. But then you say, actually, you know what heaven is? Spending eternity with God, worshiping him. I don't think a lot of people would be as appealed by that. They don't have the taste for it. Well, what if you go to somebody and you say, hey, What if one day out of seven you ceased from your work and you came and you joined other Christians and you worshipped God and you spent all day orienting yourself towards the glory of God rather than the work of your own hands? How does that sound? I think a lot of people wouldn't really like that. I think we know a lot of people don't like that because most people don't celebrate the Sabbath. And even those who do, a lot of them, what celebrating the Sabbath just means is, well, for that one hour out of my Sunday, I go to church. And then the rest of the day, it doesn't look that much different than any other day of the week. Got to get things done. Got to check things off my list. But we got to develop a taste for Yahweh. We have to develop an affection, a longing for God. And as we develop that by faithfully practicing the Sabbath every week, we become formed into the type of people that can let everything else go because we find our satisfaction in him. Because if you think about affection, what affection is, is something that we care about has become so integrated into who we are that if it's gone, we feel like a chunk of us has been taken out you know and and you can think about this with a a favorite animal that you have okay you have an affection for that animal and when that animal dies you feel this deep loss and it doesn't mean that every day you're looking at that animal saying "You're, you're the best thing in the world to me you know i love you I love you I love you it just means that it's become so much a part of you that when it's gone you feel the emptiness well often we can develop affections for lots of created things, but it's hard to develop an affection for the creator himself. It goes against our nature, our sinful nature. What Sabbath does is it trains us in our affections for God so that when we can't gather, like we haven't been able to gather for these two months, you long for it, you ache for it. You feel like something, a chunk of you has been taken out And as you develop your affections for Yahweh, you distance your affections from the created thing. And it doesn't mean that we can't love what God has created. His good gifts are very good. But it means that when we lose them, and we will lose them, one way or another, we're not devastated. We can still have peace. We can still have rest. We can still have joy because Yahweh is our inheritance. Because Yahweh is the one who we have the deepest most abiding affection for because Yahweh is the one who has formed our tastes so much that he tastes sweet even when everything else tastes bitter. I live with a family and their children don't like much food that has flavor. Um, They don't want pepper. They don't want salt. They don't want hot sauce. They don't want anything that has any flavor other than cheese and They won't even put pepperonis on their pizza. I mean, they don't like flavor at all. Um, And I look at them and I tell them, you know, one day you will like things with flavor. You just got to develop the taste for it. And for them, oh, why would I ever want to have hot sauce? or Why would I ever want to have pepperoni on my pizza? or Why would I ever want to have meat that actually tastes good? I just like bland things. My life is amazing because of all the bland things that I eat. And as somebody who loves flavor and puts hot sauce on everything, I look at them and I go, you don't know what you're missing. Now, they might think that they're so satisfied in their bland life. But if they develop tastes for rich food, suddenly their whole world has been expanded, expanded and deepened and enriched to such a way that actually there are heights of joy in eating food that they never knew that they had. That's what the Sabbath does for us with Yahweh, with God, is it develops those tastes, the richness of fellowship with God. It expands our satisfaction levels to such a degree that those created things that we felt so content with now seem so small, so bland, They're nice. Sure, I'll still eat cheese pizza if it's given to me and there's nothing else, but I want some flavor. That's what the Sabbath does. It trains us to have those tastes for Yahweh so that when everything else tastes bitter, when all the other things have been taken away, we still have a feast in him. That's the second thing the Sabbath does. It changes our affections and our tastes let's look at verse seven he says i bless the lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me here we see that the sabbath also changes our mind we're bombarded every day with messages with ideas with notions that are counter to the truth you turn on the television you open up your computer, you read the newspaper, you listen to the radio, and you're bombarded with messages that cloud our vision. It tells us that the things that we want are things that we can't have. I mean, if you, if you listen to uh, most songs, it's either going to be about money, probably money that you're not going to ever be able to make, or about some relationship that is so outside of what normal relationships are you'll never be able to attain it. Um, Or it's about some fleeting pleasure or some moment that they just want to last forever which of course those moments don't. It's telling us lies. It's telling us you can only be satisfied if you have these things and you probably will never have those things. So you go to Facebook. Or Instagram, and you see these carefully manicured photos of people living the ideal life that you wish you had. And of course, that's not their life. That's just a small snapshot of what they've done, and they probably edited the photos too. And it doesn't really give you much indication about how they're living, but it tells you this lie that they're living a way better life than you, and you can't be satisfied until you have a life like that. And, of course, you don't have a life like that, so your dissatisfaction level goes up. They've done studies about this, that social media leads to depression, anxiety, and envy, and it actually causes people to grow further apart. Uh, We're bombarded with these messages. We're bombarded with messages about what we should value, about what we should want, about what will satisfy us. We need to be retrained. Our minds need to be renewed. And here David says it is the Lord who gives him counsel and in the night his heart That heart that had already been shaped With new affections and new tastes even his heart instructs him It instructs him in the truth the truth that God is king The truth that all good comes from him the truth that we don't need the things that the world offers in order to find satisfaction, in order to find rest, in order to find comfort. It reshapes our thinking, it recenters us. So when we come to church on Sunday, when we celebrate the Sabbath, we're given the truth. Truth in a way deeper form than this world could ever give us. It renews our minds. And we need it because. We can't shut off all the other messages that come to us throughout the week. We can't shut off those lies. The only thing we can do is fill our minds with the truth. So we come and we fellowship and we hear the word preached, but then throughout the week, we pour through the word of God. We ask God to direct our minds to instruct us, to teach us how to find our rest in him. So Sabbath changes our mind. Turn with me to verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I think this is the central verse of this passage. It teaches us that Sabbath changes our vision. Have you ever thought how strange this is? He says, The Lord is always before me and he is at my right hand. How do you know? Last time I checked, you can't see God. So how do you know he's there? And if you ask a lot of people, they know he's there when they feel like he's there. But what happens when you don't feel like he's there? What happens if your circumstances tell you he's not there? What happens when your feelings change? Are you gonna doubt? Are you gonna turn to something that you know is there? Something physical, something tangible? Or are you going to learn to see through new eyes the eyes of faith that help you see a world that is even more real and more true than the physical world we have around us. This is what David is experiencing. He always sees that Yahweh is before him and at his right hand, even when circumstances are tough, even when his heart doesn't feel like God's there. He has new eyes. As Christians, this is what we're called into, a reality that we can't see. This is what Hebrews talks about. Faith is seeing things that aren't there, but they are there. Have you ever wondered why so much of the Gospels, when it uh, is focused on Jesus dealing with blind people, there are so many instances of Jesus healing the blind, giving the blind sight. It's not just because Jesus wanted to show off, say, hey, I can heal blind people it was to symbolize what was necessary to be in the new kingdom. To be in the new kingdom means you have to have new eyes. Eyes to see. Eyes to see things that other people can't see. Because we're told that Jesus is on his throne. But when we look around, it doesn't really seem like it. We're told that his church is winning and that Satan, sin, and death is losing. But when we look around, it doesn't really seem like it. We're told that there's this reality in the new heavens and the new, the new earth. Where Christ is king, where we are resting with God, we're enjoying him. And we're told that that reality has been brought into the present. This is the, the already part of the already not yet. We, this is a, the reality of Jesus' reign has been brought into the present but it's one that isn't complete yet in that it hasn't fixed all the external problems. One day Jesus will, one day Jesus will come and Jesus will defeat all of his enemies and there will be no tears and there will be no sickness and there will be no pain and all the brokenness of this physical world will be renewed. But Jesus hasn't come to fix all of the external things yet. He hasn't come to fix your circumstances yet. But he's doing a work of new creation in your heart. He's doing a a spiritual work within the church. It's a reality that we can't see, but it's real and it's true. And we're taught by the Sabbath to participate in that new reality. To participate in the victory that Jesus has already won. To have eyes to see that even when everything seems out of control, they're very much in control under Jesus' lordship. To have eyes to see that when it looks like a desert out there, Christ is raining his grace upon us. Your mercies are new every morning. Right. Uh, we need new eyes to see. We need to be able to participate in the new reality of Christ's reign and Christ's kingdom, even when everybody else thinks we're, thinks we're fools. And that's what Sabbath does. When we come into this building and when we cease from our labors, we are participating in the new realities, the unseen realities of the new heavens and the new earth. We're joining with the saints who've gone before us in a chorus of, uh, a chorus of glorious singing, celebrating Jesus's Lordship. And that's supposed to train us and shape us so that throughout the week we can see that. Um, The best analogy I can come up with is uh, one from the Bible. Good figure. Uh, There's this scene where um, the armies of Assyria are um, very close to Jerusalem. Things look really bad for the people of God. And Elisha goes out, and a servant's with him, and a servant's, you know, peeing in his pants, essentially. And uh, Elisha says, why are you so afraid? And he's like, do you see all the armies around us? And then Elisha says, oh right, I forgot, you can't see what I see. And then he prays a prayer, he says, God, help him see what I see. And then his eyes are opened, and he sees that there is an army of angels that has surrounded Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of angels that he, nobody could see except Elisha. But Elisha could see it to the point where he basically forgot that other people couldn't see it. And then, of course, the servant goes oh, okay, we're fine. We'll be okay. And then it turns out that that night, the Assyrian army turns on itself, and they kill each other, and then they leave. And then God rescues his people. That's the type of vision we are given in the Sabbath. New eyes to see a new reality that God is in control, that he is Lord, he's defeating his enemies, and there's nothing to fear. But we need the eyes of faith And we need to pursue that as David has pursued it to the point where we will not be shaken even when our circumstances don't change. All right, we're getting close to the end here. Um, So if you look at verses nine and 10, David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now you might recognize this verse. This verse is quoted by Peter in his sermon at Pentecost. And he applies it to Jesus. He says, David said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But David died. So obviously this wasn't talking about David. He was talking about the future David, the son of David, the real Holy One, Jesus, who did not stay dead in the grave, but rose after three days and ascended to the right hand of God. Now, if we're reading this, I think we have to read it through that lens. That on the one hand, I think it's fairly obvious what David is saying. He's saying that, I know that whatever circumstance is happening right now, God will protect me. God will preserve me. You will not abandon my soul. Okay? And that's something that we can feel confident in too. But... This this has a further, deeper meaning that points to Christ. And that's the clue for us. Is that we see here that our hope that God will not abandon us is in the fact that God did not abandon his son. Because Jesus was resurrected, we can feel secure. That's the declaration of Jesus' victory over the forces of chaos and emptiness and darkness, over our enemies of Satan, sin and death. He rose victorious. God did not abandon his soul to Sheol, and he won't abandon us either. Because if we're in Christ, not only are we a new creation, but we are resurrected. We, were, we rose when Christ rose, as we said a few weeks ago. And because of that, our hearts can be glad and our whole being can rejoice. Because even if we die, or a loved one dies, as Lee has been reminding us in his short study in Thessalonians, that's just the beginning of eternal life. If we are joined to Christ, we are resurrected. He will not abandon our soul, even if our body goes down to Sheol. He will not let us see corruption but we will be raised to new life. So we have hope. We have hope even if we die. We still have hope. That's a hope that can't ever be taken away. Right? This is why Jesus says, you don't have to fear the one who kills the body. Fear the one who can kill the soul. But for us, the one who can kill the soul is on our side. And he will not abandon our soul. So again, there's no need to fear. Our hearts can rejoice and be glad. So, Sabbath affirms Christ's kingship, his resurrection, and it trains us to find joy in that hope, even when everything else is threatened. So, lastly, in verse 11, he sums everything up and he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's summarizing everything he said here. There are two paths, the path of the idolater, the path of the one who can only see what's in front of them, the path of the one who only finds peace and rest when everything has fallen into place, or there's the path of life, the path of one who finds joy, fullness of joy in the presence of God and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in the unity of the saints, Things that can never be shaken and never be taken away. That is the Sabbath call. That is the Sabbath sense. And when we get that Sabbath sense and when we live by it, when we cease from our weary labors, and instead when we savor and celebrate the gift of God in Christ when we join God at his right hand to to taste and see that the Lord is good and enjoy his pleasures, we can find rest. We can find rest now, and we have hope for a future rest yet to come. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful psalm and for these beautiful words and promises that you have given us. We pray that you would give us a Sabbath sense. We pray that you would give us new eyes to see and that we would walk by faith, that we would learn. We would learn to, in faith, honor the Sabbath day and that in honoring the Sabbath day, you would shape us into Sabbath people who throughout the week can find rest and joy in you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.